Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his stars. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. We've just had that trailer for this series called The Ancients, um, and I get to wrap the series up tonight. And the, the words that we're playing over that trailer are part of a letter that is found in the New Testament of our Bibles, a letter to a group of uh, relatively new Christians called the Hebrews. And we've been working through a passage in this letter which acts as a kind of uh, a hall of fame of heroes of the faith. And so we started a couple of weeks ago where Philip came and he spoke to us about a guy called Jacob. And we talked about how faith is like a telescope. It allows you to see something that you wouldn't normally be able to see with your naked eye and live with that in mind, make decisions based on that new information. So it's a bit like if you were uh, in a boat in the middle of the ocean and with the naked eye you can't see anywhere. With the telescope you can see land and you can chart your course based on being able to see that land. And the same applies to our lives. Faith gives us some kind of insight, something that we are aiming for and we can make decisions based off that information. Then last week, Kate spoke to us about a guy called Moses and how faith shapes our identities when we understand the way that we fit in with God's story and with God's plan. And again, when we come to that new understanding of our identity and our, our purpose, it affects the way we choose to relate to one another, the way we choose to do community, the way we choose to live our lives. And so, so far we've looked at these really practical heroes of the faith, people who were given these really clear choices, and they were called to step out in faith. They were called to make decisions based on this faith, based on what they can see, this better ending that they can see, they live a better story. But tonight I want to wrap up the series looking at faith by asking, well, what if we don't have choices to make? Sometimes we're in situations where actually we feel powerless, where all the choices seem to be made for us. It's like we're in the middle of the ocean and we've got our telescope. We can see the land, but our motor has broken down, our sail is torn, the oars have broken. We can't do anything to get ourselves to this better ending that we can see. Does faith have anything to say to us? Is faith something that we can have in that situation? And the answer is yes. We've got this practical kind of faith, but there's another kind of faith, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. And this can impact our lives in so many different ways. 
Maybe you've been around in the last few weeks and you've heard stories of incredible healings that we've seen in this community. But you are living with some kind of condition that impacts your life. And you can't do anything to take that condition away. The doctors can't do anything to take that condition away. But you can see this better ending of what it would be like to live without that impacting on your life. But you're powerless to get there. Or maybe it's relationships. You can see this better ending of a marriage with a godly Christian, someone who shares the same values as you, with similar interests, building this life with God at the center of it. But there's not actually anybody around that could be that for you. And you can't just magic up the perfect person out of thin air. Not everyone just has a Philip Gennardo land in their lap. Um, <laughs> maybe it's you're at work and there's someone in a position of power over you who just likes to make your life difficult. They like to blame you for things. You don't get credit you get overworked, and you're trying to, to work and conduct your, yourself in a way where you, are, you have dignity, you're doing things with integrity, with honesty, but this person's making it really hard for you. You can see a better ending where you're living a life where you actually enjoy your job, but at the moment, there's nothing you can do to get yourself there. And when we're in these powerless situations, it still calls for faith. But it's got to look a bit different to the kind of faith that we've been looking at so far. And so tonight I want to talk about a woman called Sarah and her husband Abraham. Now Abraham is uh, often named as one of the heroes of the faith, the father of faith. He's referred to in the Bible. He comes up throughout the, uh, the different books of the Bible as this example of someone who really knew what faith was and who lived his whole life based on faith. And Sarah is his wife. And her story is a bit different. She's in this powerless situation. So we're going to look at their story from this letter to the Hebrews. And uh, we're picking up the story of Abraham and Sarah when Sarah is about 65 and Abraham is about 75. So they're getting on a bit. And they are reasonably well off. They've got um, some servants. They've got some sheep. Um, the kind of things that you want when you're living in the ancient Near East, uh, so I'm told. And so they've got a lot of stuff, but they don't have a child. And for Sarah in particular, that is agonizing. She has longed for a child uh, because she longs to be a mother but also in her particular social situation, the child secured your identity. It secured your, your future, your place in the family. Your validity as a woman was at stake in that culture. And so for all these reasons, she's longing for a child. But she gets to the age of 65 and she doesn't have one. We're told that she's been barren for her whole life. And even if she wasn't, she's now past the age when any normal woman would be able to have a child. And then their story continues, and we get to a point where Sarah is 90, and Abraham is 100 years old, and they still don't have a child. But this is 
what Hebrews has to say about them. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were his son and his grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children. Spoiler alert, Sarah gets a child when she is 90 years old. And somehow, faith is wrapped up in that situation. And I want to work out what, what was that? How, how did that work when Sarah was completely powerless, having spent 90 years being barren, longing for a child? It's not like she can have the same kind of faith we've seen in Jacob and in Moses, where God asks her to make decisions and take practical steps. Because from what I hear, there's one practical step that is involved in having a child. But for Sarah, it didn't really matter how much Marvin Gaye she put on the radio or how many rose petals she scattered on the bed. It just, it wasn't happening for them. So her faith must look something different. We've got these two kinds of faith, a faith which is practical, which requires sacrifice and decisions to be made. But this other kind of more mysterious faith, less tangible faith that somehow can be an operation when we are powerless. Perhaps you remember a story that gripped the attention of the world back in 2010 in Chile. There was a catastrophic mining disaster and uh, there were 33 men who were known to be in this mine, 2,000 feet underground. And there was a huge collapse. And rock fell down into the, the shaft of the mine and completely trapped them. They were missing, feared, and presumed dead. And the world watched for 17 days as this rescue operation started. And this rescue operation was one that had to be done in faith. In the faith that there was somehow something worth doing. That it was worth gathering these specialists and pouring millions of dollars into this rescue operation. For these guys who the chances of any one of them surviving were so small. They were tiny. They were trapped somewhere 2,000 feet underground. And it was described as finding a needle in a haystack, the hope of somehow breaking into one of these passages and being able to get access to the mine. But the president of Chile took this step of faith and he announced to the families on one of the early days that they would keep drilling until they found the guys who were trapped. Whether they were dead or alive, he wanted to reunite them with their families somehow, in whatever way that would look like. And so, after three days of 
disastrous attempts uh, at trying to, to rescue them. They started drilling, and they just triggered another collapse. And it wasn't looking like it was going to end well. They knew that their food supplies would have run out. They only had three days max of, of food and water supplies. But they kept going. And we see this faith in action, this faith like Moses and Jacob, where there are people being called to make these big decisions based on this better ending that they could see. The president of Chile could see this ending where they were reuniting some of these trapped miners with their families who were desperate. On the surface, they built this, this town, which they called Hope, and they gathered there every day, and, and they prayed. And the first week comes to an end, and they are still nowhere near rescuing them. And the, the second week comes to an end, and the president has his advisors around him who are saying, when are we going to stop? When are we going to stop wasting money? There's no chance that anyone down in this mine is still alive. And then on day 17, one of the drills breaks through into this air pocket. And one of the engineers reports hearing a sound as if someone was banging on the end of this drill 2,000 feet down with a hammer or a wrench or something like that. And they pull this drill bit up and there are scenes of elation beamed around the world as they find a note attached to the end of the drill. And they open up this note before the eyes of the world's media. And the note says, we are well in the refuge, we the 33. And by some miracle, all 33 of these guys were alive down in the mine. They'd managed to stay alive for 17 days. And we see that the, the faith, the better ending, that the people on the surface conducting this rescue operation, it paid off. They found these guys, and it was another 52 days before they managed to pull them to the surface because they had to drill incredibly carefully so as not to jeopardize them any further. But all 33 guys got pulled to the surface, and we see this active faith in the people that were performing the rescue. What we didn't get to see was down in the mine for those 17 days, the guys were powerless. They didn't have these choices like Moses and like Jacob where they could be doing things in faith because they were trapped. They had no ability to rescue themselves. They were completely dependent. They could hear these drills coming down either side of the chamber that they were stuck in, missing them. And they needed to have faith as well. They needed to have this kind of faith that Sarah had in her powerlessness. And they did. They gathered every day and they would pray together because that was the one thing they could do. And they shared out the three days worth of rations that they had. They lived on half a teaspoon of tuna each every day. And I'm sure we've all heard stories of similar kind of catastrophic um, survival situations where it's not gone like that, where they've started to turn on one another. And that's where the experts say these things always go wrong, is when people start to give up their hope. They, they stop having faith. They can't see a better ending anymore. And so they start to make awful judgments about who should survive, about having to prioritize one another, uh, some of them over 
others. They, they start saying, oh, that person is weak. They're not going to make it anyway. We might as well stop giving them rations and save it for the people who still have a chance. But these guys didn't do that. These guys had this still, steady faith, even though they were completely powerless. And somehow it transformed their situation. There's a whole load of um, miracles that they report happening down in the mine. But my favorite is after they ran out of water after a few days, uh, the, the drinking water that they had, they had to turn to these two tanks of industrial water that they had down there. And so this water was never meant for human consumption. It was meant for industrial use. And they gathered around one of the tanks and they prayed over it. And that was the water that they drank for the next 14 days until the rescuers broke through and were able to get them fresh supplies. And when these guys were all lifted to the surface on the 69th day of this, uh, this operation, they took with them some samples from these two water containers. And the one that they had prayed over was completely pure. They took it for testing and, and it was perfectly palatable. The other one they tested, and if the miners had drunk from that container, they would have all died. They had the faith to gather around and, and pray because that was all that they could do. And so these, these two different kinds of faith, the faith on the surface, which is active, which is drilling, which is making decisions, which is pouring money and time and um, effort into the operation, is one kind of faith, like we see in Abraham's life. And then we have this other kind of faith 2,000 feet below, where these people are, are powerless. And yet, somehow their faith transforms their situation, much like Sarah's faith transforms her situation. And we get these pictures on the, uh, the final day. And uh, they estimate a billion people around the world saw these guys being pulled up alive and most of them, as soon as they got up, they knelt and they prayed, they worshipped, because they said this was a miracle that happened in that mine. And we got to see that phone footage that they captured in the early days of them together and, and the, the faith that they had. And so I think what we get from these stories, Abraham and Sarah and these Chilean miners, is two flavours of faith. They have the same kind of structure behind them, but there's these subtle differences in the ingredients that give them a different taste, that they, they seem so different to us. We've got the faith to step out. That's the kind of faith that we saw on the surface with the people making these decisions. It's the kind of faith we see in Abraham's story, where it says that by faith he left his home in search of a better land that God had promised. But in Sarah and in the miners trapped underground, in the moments in our lives when we are powerless and when we just seem to be adrift, the kind of faith that we need then is this faith to stand firm. It's a faith that says, I can't step out. There's nowhere for me to, to step. My, my feet are stuck where they are, but faith to stand firm. And Sarah's story highlights to us how that can transform your situation. 
It says that um, by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children. Her faith enabled her. It was her faith that somehow, some way, transformed the outcome of the situation she was in. And I guess we could, we could leave it there. We could say, well, that's a nice encouragement. Faith can enable things to, to change. But we would leave here not really knowing anything more about what that looks like. You know, can I, can I do anything to have this faith? Is it just a nice story for Sarah? Does it apply to us today? Like, what, what is it? What is this faith? If it doesn't involve stepping out, if it doesn't involve like, making these really practical choices, is there anything that I can do? Or do I, am I just the kind of person who either has faith or, or doesn't have faith? Sarah got lucky. She was just born with faith. Maybe I wasn't. But here's the good news, is that the author of Hebrews doesn't end it there. He doesn't just say that it was Sarah's faith that enabled her to bear children. They go on and they unlock it for us. They, they tell us what it actually looks like, what it was in the stillness of Sarah's faith that was going on. It says it was because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. That's what Sarah's faith was. It was to consider God faithful. Just like the miners had to consider God faithful. And they did so by, by praying over their water supplies, by working out the arguments that came up between them, by, by dividing out these rations, by trusting that somehow against the odds, these drills would eventually break through into the little room that they were in. They considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so this is another thing we find out. Sarah was promised by God that she was going to have a child. It wasn't just a surprise one day. God came into her life and made a promise. She considered him faithful, and somehow that enabled the child to be born. So let's look at the slightly strange encounter where this happens. Um, at this point, Sarah is 89. Abraham is 99. Um, and we have this story of these three strangers who turn up at their tent where they are living. And what we get to, to know, what the text tells us that Abraham and Sarah are kind of oblivious to initially is that one of these strangers is somehow God in human form. A bit like two weeks ago, Philip shared the story of Jacob and how God in, in this human form turned up and wrestled through the night with Jacob. We see God again in human form with Abraham, who's Jacob's grandfather, and these two other figures who we believe are angels. So they come to the tent where they're staying. And it says this. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, by this point, this isn't news to Abraham. Uh, he has actually had God give him a load of promises uh, that he's going to have a son. Um, 
Abraham hasn't dealt with this incredibly well. There was a small episode where uh, he ended up sleeping with Sarah's slave girl and having a son with her. And God's like, no, that's not it. That, that wasn't it. You, so you, ju you just needed to wait. Um, so God has made the promise a bit more clear to Abraham. And he said, no, you're going to have a child with Sarah, your wife. Um, it, you know, obvious, but what can you do? Um, now, we don't know whether Sarah has been let in on this promise. We don't know whether Abraham felt that that was an important thing to share or whether he thought, you know, I'll just worry her. Um, I'll keep that to myself. And so it tells us that Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. And again, it just reiterates Abraham and Sarah were already very old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, just in case you hadn't picked it up in their story already. Uh, and then it goes on and it says, so Sarah laughed to herself. She overheard this promise, which was being directed to Abraham, but Sarah laughed to herself and thought, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord, you see, we get to know that this is God. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? I like this because that's not actually what Sarah thought. Sarah thought Abraham is really old, but God has the tact to, to filter that out and um, save Abraham's feelings. He cuts out the bit where she says Abraham's really old, um, which is quite nice. That's, that made me chuckle. Um, and so this happens, and then next, the penny kind of drops. Um, God says, anything too hard for the Lord. I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. It tells us Sarah was afraid. Now, Sarah had a good reason to be afraid, because what it told us was that Sarah thought these things, and God said, why did Sarah say Sarah didn't say anything. Sarah thought, will I have this pleasure? But God, this, this stranger who's turned up at their tent says, why did Sarah say? And so Sarah has probably pretty quickly worked out that there's only one person that she knows of who can know your thoughts as if you said them. She works out that this is God that has turned up at their tent and she has just laughed at him when he's made her a promise. It says Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. It's a bit like uh, it happened in school all the time. You know, the, the teacher would turn around and be writing on the whiteboard and then someone would do something and someone would laugh and the teacher would turn around and say, what's so funny? Why did you do a laugh? And you go, I didn't laugh. It wasn't, I didn't laugh. And you know, you, you blame the person next to you. And the teacher normally does the thing where they sort of say, if it's so funny, why don't you share it with the class? And you know, teachers think they're so clever like that and whatever. Um, so, you know, Sarah jumps to her defense. She says, I didn't laugh. But this being God, he says, yes, you did laugh. He gives her a slap on the wrist. He says, yeah, you did laugh. Actually, these are the only words that God addresses directly to Sarah at any point in her story in the Bible. It's three words in Hebrew, and we translate it as, yes, you did laugh. That's it. That's in the whole of her story. That's all that we get to know he said to her directly. 
And it seems to be this kind of ticking off, this slap on the wrist, this rebuke. How dare you laugh at God? You know, you've got a right to be afraid if you laughed at God. He's a bit more scary than your average school teacher. You know, he can do more than just give you detention. He's the God of the universe and she knows this. But actually, when we get the Hebrews passage, it, it tells us that somewhere in here, Sarah considers God faithful and she believes him who had made the promise and that, that that was her faith. That's what her faith looked like. If we fast forward a year, we find that the promise comes true. Sarah, at the grand old age of 90, which is even older than Philip, has a child. Abraham is 100, um, which is like pretty much two Philips, um, which is crazy. And they have a child. And, and God has told them to name this child Isaac. So they name the child Isaac. Now, Isaac means laughter. And that's the translation. The translation is laughter. And when you know that God has blessed them and the result of this promise is a child that he says should be called laughter, it reframes this whole situation. It makes you think, well, maybe when God says, yes, you did laugh, what if he's not telling Sarah off? What if actually these are the, the warm words of a father, a God who has come close, come to earth and has come and joined them at their tent to make a promise to them? What if actually these words are an affirmation? Maybe that's the reason they're the only words that God says directly to Sarah. Maybe they're not filled with scorn, but they are filled with love and affection. Because Sarah laughs and God blesses her with laughter. Her faith enables her to laugh. Her faith brings forth this, this laughter, this special child. And so what we see is that when Sarah laughs, she asks a question. She dares to think, well, maybe it's possible. Will I now have this pleasure? And I think Sarah's faith, what we can learn from Sarah is her faith is in the laughter. Her faith is in the question. Even though it seemed impossible, she didn't just dismiss this prediction that at the time some random stranger she thought was making. She doesn't just say, he doesn't know anything. She laughs and, and she thinks, well, could it be? Maybe, maybe it is possible. We can't just dismiss Sarah's faith. I think her faith is in her laughter and her faith is in the question. And that should give us a lot of hope because we often see faith as this thing that you, you kind of have to summon up or you have to kind of reason out. I can have faith because of this. Like this is, this is a reason I can believe that this is possible, right? But Sarah is faced with something completely impossible and her faith 
is in the laughter. That, that sets a pretty low bar. I feel like I can have enough faith to laugh at God when he makes a ridiculous promise. Like that, that sounds achievable. And so whatever it is that you are praying for, whatever it is that you are hoping for, it kind of, it makes it feel like maybe I've got enough faith for that. Maybe I've got enough faith for God to transform my situation. And what was her trick? She considered him faithful. She chose after 90 years not to think of God as someone who was refusing to to give her what she wanted, not as someone who came along to, to taunt her and to make an empty promise, but she chose to believe in his goodness. She chose to believe that he was going to be faithful. And he was. And so we always have this choice. Sarah, in her powerlessness, worked this out. She knew that she had a choice to consider God faithful. And so we're never truly powerless in in this dynamic with God because we can always choose to consider him faithful. We can always choose to to pray, to reach out. The story of Sarah made a lot more sense to me when I thought of the story of another powerless woman, this time a woman who encounters Jesus um, when he's going about his ministry. And he's going through the town where this woman lives and she has been bleeding for 12 years, we're told. She's completely shunned from her society uh, because bleeding made you like ritually unclean. Um, it prevented you from worshipping in the temple properly. It restricted what you could do. It restricted the kind of interactions that you were allowed to have with people. And so she had this complete burden on her. She was completely powerless. And Jesus walks through the town. And what does she do? She goes and she goes up to Jesus and she reaches out and she touches his cloak and she's instantly healed. And Jesus says, it is your faith that has made you well. In a a physical way, she got to reach out and touch Jesus. But I think Sarah, these thousands of years before, was just doing the same thing. It just wasn't as physical. She couldn't touch Jesus she could reach out from her heart with her, her words, with her worship. And I, I feel like I had a kind of experience of this a couple of years ago on this very stage, actually. Um, I'd been at Metro for, for a couple of years. and I was part of the, the team leading worship. Um, it was something I did about once a month. And... Uh, I'd been in a relationship for a few years um, that had, it had run kind of my last year uh, sixth form and then the first couple of years of trying to work out what all this adulting business was about and like how that worked. Um, so, you know, it, it was kind of a, a big time of transition and stuff in my life and that was a, a fairly constant thing. And then suddenly, um, one day within the space of about a, a five-minute conversation my girlfriend had decided that she was out she she couldn't explain why but she just left 
she disappeared. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of felt like I was trapped a couple of thousand feet underground and the weight of the world had crumbled on top of me. I felt powerless to do anything about it. It affected kind of every area of my life, really. She was also part of uh, this church. And so this felt like it wasn't a safe place anymore. All our kind of friendship groups were, were mixed together. The hobbies that we did were um, kind of shared. And so it was like just my whole life crumbled. And then a week later, I was due to get up on this stage and lead worship. And during that week, it was, you know, it was the lowest week of my life. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't really enjoying anything. I was questioning what had happened. I had no answers. I, it, I still don't have any answers. But somehow I had to face, you know, do I get up and, and lead worship? In that week, it felt like God was so distant. I had so many questions about, you know, if, if God is meant to be the comforter, why don't I feel comforted? If he's meant to bring peace, why do I feel so unpeaceful all of the time? If he's meant to be my rock, why do I feel like the ground beneath me won't stop moving? And so, you know, I was faced with, can I get up and, and lead worship? Songs that are full of, you know, declaring these things about God, declaring he is good, good. He's never going to let me down. And I don't know if I could have sung that song because it felt like I wasn't sure if it was real, if it was true in my life at that time. And yet looking back, now I know that actually God was there. He was so close that I couldn't make him out. But at the time, I thought he wasn't there. But I, I got up and I stood up and we went through rehearsal and I was singing these songs and I was just kind of there the whole time like, this just needs to be over. This, I'm singing these words, but they feel hollow. They feel like there's, there's nothing behind them. I don't know if, if this is true. I have so many questions, so many doubts. And we got to the, the service and, you know, I got up and I sang them and, and we got to the last song, which was Cornerstone. And as I sang the words, Christ alone, Cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love, that was my experience. You know, I, I got up and I was weak, so weak. But somehow, by choosing to consider him faithful, by, by saying, I have so many questions about these words, what this means in my life, where you are, but I'm going to consider these things to still be true. I'm going to declare them even if they don't make sense in my circumstance. And so I sang weak made strong in the Savior's love. Even though I was weak, even though I'd sung them in rehearsal and nothing had changed, I'd gone from weak to still weak. But somehow in choosing to do that, in choosing to consider God faithful, I got to the end of that song and I felt strong in a way that I can't explain. And it was the most, the most powerful experience I've ever had of God. 
one of the kind of most vivid, most real experiences just in, in life in general. Um, I got to the end of the song and I, I opened my eyes. I'd kind of had my eyes screwed shut for the whole worship set. I was like, oh, there's, there's 120 odd people here. Um, whoops. But, you know, it, it didn't matter. It, it had just been me and God. And then people started coming up to me and, you know, they didn't know anything that had happened in my life, but they were like, there was something about that that was different. They'd seen me lead worship a load of times before. And someone came up to me and said, somehow I just knew the words that you were singing were true. And it was like, I didn't know that they would be until I sang them. But I dared to laugh. I dared to ask the question. And someone else came up to me and said, you know, I think you worshipped yourself happy. And I was like, yeah, I did. I worshipped myself happy. And the, the weeks after that were still tough, but they were so much better. I, you know, I managed to sleep. I managed to start eating somehow by considering God faithful in that way. It transformed my circumstance. It, it transformed the place that I was in. And so we need to consider God faithful, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we have questions about it. It's not faith if it's certain, but we choose to consider him faithful. And, you know, I want to be really clear about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we need to have more faith somehow, that we can like muster up this faith and that if your life isn't going well, if there are these things that you feel powerless in, you need to just, you know, get more faith and I'll be fixed. That's not what I'm saying because I'm afraid that's not true. Even the people that we've been reading about over the last few weeks, it says they all died waiting for some of the things that God promised to come true because he's going to bring all of these things together one day at the same time, where the things he's promised them, the things that he promises us now, are all going to come true on the day that, that Jesus returns. And so in this sense, faith isn't so much like a sliding scale where you can have more of it and your life will be better if you have more of it. It's more like a, a yes or a no. It's a shutting it down or having enough faith to laugh and, and ask the question. And so if you are in this room or if you are watching this back online, I can promise you that you've got enough faith because coming here today or listening to this, giving your time for it is enough faith. Even if it feels like you don't have any, the fact that you've dared to ask the question, you know, will I have this pleasure is Sarah's question. And somehow by coming here, by listening to this, you've, you're asking that kind of question. You, you've got enough faith. And so God can transform our circumstances when we have that faith, when we ask these questions. So we need to keep asking these questions, keep laughing, keep praying, keep reading our Bibles. All of these small things, they're all acts of faith that God can use to transform our circumstances. And so if you're still waiting for him to bring that right person into your life and you're wondering, ah, do I just widen the net? Do I, you know, go for someone who isn't a Christian yet and I'll try and convert them or, or whatever. But, you know, God's not bringing anyone else along and they're quite nice. Let's do that. Hang in there. Stand firm. Have the faith to stand firm. 
And God can use that. He can transform your circumstance. There's all sorts of things that God promises us in the Bible. And, and, you know, I want to finish with this. Just what is it that you have, you felt that you thought God wanted to do in your life, but maybe you've given up on it because he, he hasn't yet. And so you must have been wrong, right? Sarah must have thought that for decades and God was faithful. So what is that for you? What is the promise that you need to hear? You know, we can open our Bibles and they're full of promises. And if we consider him faithful who made that promise, then that's going to be true. Maybe it's the promise that God fights for you. God fights for you. Maybe it's the promise that God gives you strength in your weakness. Maybe it's the promise that he will never leave you. Even though other people just seem to disappear from your life, God will never leave you. That is a promise that he makes. That is something that we can choose to consider to be true. And it is. God will clear our names when people lie about us, when we get caught up in gossip and rumors and those kinds of things. If you are a victim of that sort of thing in your life at the moment, you don't need to fall to that level because God promises he will clear your name. Just consider him faithful. Maybe there's someone else in your life that doesn't know God and you've been praying for them, you've tried talking to them, you've tried inviting them to Alpha, to Metro, all these kinds of things, but there's, there's just no traction there. None of this is happening. Consider him faithful who made the promise because he will never stop pursuing them. Consider him faithful. And that can just be a, a laugh, just be a question. It can just be a, a feeble prayer, but it's enough. And so I want to I pray. Um, if you've got something in your life that you feel powerless in, then maybe you want to just reach out your hands, present that to, to God and ask him, to come and work in that situation. Choose to consider him faithful. It might not look how you think it will, but he'll meet you in that. Or if you know someone else and, that is going through this kind of thing, then reach out a hand um, and pray with them, stand with them. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are always faithful that we can have our lives transformed by this. That you set the bar low for, for the faith that we need and you can grow that faith, you can transform our lives. And God, I want to pray that for everyone here in the, the situations where we feel powerless, would you come and meet with us? Would you come and, and bless our laughter? Bless our questions. Would you come and deliver on these promises that people need you to come and deliver on? 
Jesus' name. Amen.